warm welcome to First Move. I'm Max Foster in for Julia Chatterley. Just ahead on today's show, French President Macron holding a new round of crisis talks this Friday as police brace for a fourth night of nationwide unrest. More than 800 people were arrested last night alone and the growing outrage over the death of a teenager at the hands of police. We'll have a live report. Plus, new documents shared exclusively with CNN suggest Russian General Sergei Surovikin was a secret member of the Wagner Group. He's not been seen in public for days. Fresh speculation that Russian forces are out to kill Wagner head Yevgeny Prigozhin too. The latest from Moscow just ahead. On Wall Street, US stocks are on track for a solidly higher open on this last trading day of the month, the quarter and the first half of the year as well. Europe also in the green. Important US and European inflation data have just been released too. Eurozone consumer prices easing to their lowest level in 15 months, the second straight month of encouraging numbers, although core inflation rates continue to push higher. Encouraging numbers in the US too. The Fed's preferred inflation measure, the core Price index uh, easing slightly to 4.6% in May on a year-over-year basis. Uh, a lot to get through this hour then. We begin, though, with France, uh, where President Macron is calling for calm after three nights of disorder following the fatal police shooting of a teenager. Nearly 900 people were detained overnight and around 250 police officers injured in battles with protesters. At the root of it all is allegations of racism and strong-arm tactics by police. A swimming pool being built for next year's Olympics was one of several sites damaged and a dozen buses were set on fire in the same Paris suburb. President Emmanuel Macron is in Paris chairing a second emergency meeting with ministers, having left an EU summit early. He said the situation was unacceptable and urged parents to take responsibility for their children, but he's come under fire after pictures emerged of him attending an Elton John concert on Wednesday night as the protests raged. Nick Robson is just outside Paris. Um, I'm wondering how much difference these sort of appeals from Macron will make when there's so much anger on the streets. Um, in the short term, it doesn't appear so, Max. Uh, just to give you an idea of the scale of protests at the moment, 40,000 police security forces deployed last night at the height of the pension protests, um, 13,000 police deployed. So you get a sense of the scale and magnitude, but I'll break it down with other figures for you. According to government officials, more than 500 buildings have been damaged uh, and targeted in attacks. 200 of those have been government buildings, 79 uh, of those have been police stations, security force bases, 34 town halls, 24 schools. And this gets to the point of what President Macron is talking about. He says it is not this violence isn't justified anymore. He says it's not justified to target government buildings. In this neighborhood we're in, 12 buses in the one bus station were torched overnight. Another 14 buses in the same area at another bus station torched. A lot of other damage out on the streets, a tram destroyed. The total cost just of those vehicles alone, $11.7 million. So you get a sense, okay, writ large across the whole country, because that's what we're talking about now in the north, in uh, in Lille, in Nantes in the west, Roubaix further southwest, Marseille in the south, Lyon in the center. All of these towns and others getting caught up uh, in, in this passionate outburst of aggression against the authorities. I asked the transport minister here what the government he thinks can do about the violence. It's in the interest of those who are expressing their anger today to protect our public service. 
And then we live in a society of law. The justice system needs to be able to carry out its work. No one is above the law, but everyone has the rights protected by the law. We also need to leave the justice system in tranquility. It's what we owe to the young man who was killed. Calm, tranquility, and justice carried out in good conditions. So that underlying appeal, damage of government buildings, government institutions, places that people use, schools, places,、uh, things that they use every day, buses and trams, is in no one's interest. But at the moment, that doesn't seem to be cutting through. It's the anger and passion that seems to be winning the day, or better put, winning the night at the moment, Max.、Um, and this idea, you know, sending in lots of police, urging calm, it's difficult, isn't it, when they're. Actual issue is with the police, away from the you know specific incident that happened earlier in the week. Yeah, this sense that the police,、uh, in essence,、uh, racial profiling, racial targeting—call it, call it what you will—are、uh, picking on the poorer people who are living in the suburbs.、Uh, that there's a sense of real racial discrimination. That the number of these types of attacks、uh, or situations with the police have escalated. This is the underlying feeling—a social and. Economic driving force that there's a disenfranchised part of the population who don't live the life that President Macron and the people in the centre of the cities. I mean, just look at that map of the fires around Paris last night. They were around Paris. That's where the passion and anger was. We were in the centre of Paris as well last night, as well as in some of these suburbs. And there, the cafes were all full. People were all sitting out on the streets,、uh, enjoying a, a very Parisian and wonderful evening. But that's not shared by everyone, and that's what underlies this and fuels this anger here. That the police disproportionately crack down、uh, with a racial bias and economic bias in some of these more disenfranchised neighbourhoods. Okay,、uh, Nick Robertson in France. Thank you.、Uh, in Russia, documents shared exclusively with CNN suggesting that General, General Sergei. As、uh, Ravikin was a member, a secret VIP member of the Wagner Group, the documents show that he had a personal registration number with the private military company. So Ravikin has not been seen in public since the failed Wagner mutiny、uh, last weekend. Matthew Chance、uh, joins us now、uh, from Moscow, and、um, the,、uh, the assumption is that he's been arrested, right? Um, well, that's something that's been reported by、um, the Moscow Times,、um, but it's not something that's been confirmed by the Russian authorities. In fact, the Kremlin have said they won't comment on it. The Defence Ministry have refused to comment,、um, and the、uh, Moscow Ombudsman、uh, for Prisons, that looks after prisoners' prisoner rights,、um, says that、um, General Surovikin is is not in any of the Moscow-based、uh, uh, sort of prison facilities. Um, at, at this moment, and, and so the the mystery of his whereabouts and, and why he hasn't appeared、uh, in public since Saturday,、uh, when he made that appeal, that strange, nervous appeal to Wagner forces to abandon、uh, their military uprising, ha- has not yet、uh, been resolved. But you know, this these documents that that were shown exclusively to CNN by the dossier obtained by the Dossier Center, which is a Russian investigative group, you know, kind of you know, shed some. Light on what was previously unknown about the proximity of the relationship between、uh, General Surovikin and other senior Russian、uh, military and intelligence figures, and this mercenary group that staged this uprising,、um, and implies an overly close relationship 
uh, between certain individuals and the mercenary group. It's relevant because uh, the mercenaries were basically allowed uh, to take over an entire Russian city with virtually a shot not being fired, without shot being fired. Um, and so there are lots of questions being asked in Russia right now about divided loyalties and about whether enough was done by the security services uh, to uh, protect uh, Russian military facilities from this uprising. And so you know, the fact that there, there's a list of 30 people with VIP Wagner membership uh, who are also in the security services, the, the military and the intelligence uh, services uh, may be relevant. Matthew Chance in Moscow, thank you. Meanwhile, European leaders working to figure out how to use frozen Russian assets to help rebuild Ukraine. More than $200 billion has been locked in European accounts since Moscow's invasion of Ukraine last year. Anna Stewart has been looking through all of that. Anna. Well, rebuilding Ukraine would take a very long time and cost a huge amount of money. The World Bank has estimated it could cost at least $411 billion. And ever since the first round of sanctions was imposed on Russia, there has been a discussion as to how you could use frozen Russian assets to help in that, in that aim. Now, simply selling Russian assets at this stage is considered a no-go. It wouldn't be legal. There's also lots of political ramifications. However, using some of the interest that is generated from the frozen assets, that is something that has been seriously considered. Now, two-thirds of the more than $300 billion of Russia's foreign reserves that are currently frozen uh, sort of overseas, two-thirds of that is held in the EU and a huge chunk of it actually in Euroclear, which is the European Clearinghouse. And that's because the money simply couldn't, uh, couldn't reach the Russian accounts where it was destined. Now, the interest on those assets is vast. So just in the first quarter, more than $800 million was raised in terms of interest. And so that's what's being discussed. Could this interest being used be put in a fund? And could that then be used to help with the Ukrainian reconstruction efforts? Uh, that's under discussion. And of course, it would mean that the Russian assets that underlie that interest would still be available if and when it can be returned to Russia. Um, what are the objections here? Are there any, is there anyone, you know, beyond Russia objecting to this? <laughs> there is a huge amount of hesitancy, actually, from some EU member states, certainly from the ECB, the European Central Bank, and really hinging on two issues. The first is legalities. Is this legal, um, given that Russia invaded Ukraine illegally and the EU likes to talk a lot about how it abides by the rule of law? That is obviously key. The second is really precedent. And there is a concern here that you might put off other central banks from around the world from using the euro and euro-denominated assets for foreign reserves if you went through this method. Um, EU leaders discussing this now take it to the EU Commission level and they'll be looking at all of these elements. I think any agreement on it, if it does come from the EU, will probably also require the support of the G7 so the EU doesn't have to sort of go it alone. But at this stage, it's still very much at the proposal level. Max. OK. Anna Stewart, thank you. Now to a landmark U.S. Supreme Court decision. The High Court has ruled race can no longer be considered as a factor in college admissions, overturning a decades-old policy that's benefited black and Latino students. CNN Justice correspondent Jessica Schneider has the details. It's done more to unravel basic rights and basic decisions than any court in recent history.
President Joe Biden slamming the Supreme Court after it upended decades of precedent on affirmative action. The 6-3 opinion written by Chief Justice John Roberts says Harvard and the University of North Carolina violated the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. Roberts writing, the student must be treated based on his or her experiences as an individual, not on the basis of race. Many universities have for too long done just the opposite. Justice Sonia Sotomayor, the first woman of color on the Supreme Court, issued a fiery dissent accusing the conservative majority of employing an unjustified exercise of power that will only serve to highlight the court's own impotence in the face of an America whose cries for equality resound. The two cases were brought by the group Students for Fair Admissions, led by activist Edward Bloom, who has fought for nearly a decade to eradicate affirmative action. The case against Harvard was brought on behalf of Asian students, arguing they were disadvantaged because Harvard prioritized other minorities and ranked them lower for personality traits. We should be treated on the basis of our merits. We should be treated on the basis of how hard we work, our study, our SAT scores, our grades. Uh, A name-blind, race-blind process is... But critics say the ruling is a setback for racial and ethnic equality in education. I'm really most worried about, you know, the youth and, like... Um, the students younger than us in high school and middle school and elementary school who might not get the same opportunity that I did. The divide reflected in sharply worded opinions from the court's two black justices. Justice Clarence Thomas writing, Justice Jackson's race-infused worldview falls flat at each step. Justice Katanji Brown Jackson firing back. Justice Thomas ignites too many more straw men to list or fully extinguish here. Several GOP presidential contenders applauding the decision, including Senator Tim Scott. I think this is a good day for America, honestly. This is the day where we understand that being judged by the content of our character, not the color of our skin, is what our Constitution wants. The Biden administration now working to provide guidance to colleges nationwide. We're going to produce by September and publish best practices around college admission practices to ensure across the country that our students know that this administration is behind them and we support them making it to college. More protests expected outside the Swedish embassy in Baghdad later today after the burning of a Quran in Stockholm. On Thursday, protesters tried to enter the embassy's grounds. The unrest began after a man burned the Muslim holy book outside a mosque as part of a planned protest. Swedish authorities allowed the protest to take place, saying freedom of expression had to be upheld. Uh, Muslim countries and organizations have condemned the act, Iran calling it an act of provocation and Kuwait describing it as a dangerous step. Jamana Karachi joins us now. Um, you know, you're, you're protecting freedom of speech on one hand, but you're also clearly inciting violence, as we've seen now in Iraq. So it's a very delicate balance the Swedes had there. They are in a very tough position, Max. I mean, we saw that when the uh, police authorized that protest to take place, that one-man protest burning the Quran outside uh, the mosque on Wednesday. They did acknowledge in their uh, permission that this could have repercussions when it comes to foreign policy, that this could cause an increase uh, in the security risk, an increased risk of terrorist attacks. Uh, But then again, Swedish officials uh, constantly say that this is, uh, they're, they're not not uh, condoning this. They don't agree with this. Uh, They've condemned 
uh, this act, but they say this is what their country is about. This is democracy, uh, and it's protected by uh, the country's constitution, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, and assembly, all protected by the constitution. Uh, but on the other hand, you've got Arab and Muslim states who are saying they've had enough of this, that these uh, continuous attacks that they have seen, uh, they say, against their religion, against their holy book, uh, taking place in Sweden, they say under um, the pretext of uh, freedom of expression, uh, are essentially Islamophobia, hate speech, and this should not be allowed uh, to continue. And we have seen over the past 48 hours or so, not only are governments uh, across the Middle East uh, condemning what has happened, uh, they are also summoning ambassadors. And you're seeing, obviously, uh, a more radical sort of reaction in Iraq. Uh, this is the country from which the man who burned the Quran uh, comes from. He's an Iraqi refugee. And there we are seeing uh, these protests, as you mentioned, uh, dozens of protesters did pour into the compound of the Swedish embassy in Baghdad. There was no violence. The Swedish uh, foreign ministry said that their staff were safe. But you can clearly see that people uh, were angry. They were outraged by what happened. And today we are seeing more protests. These were all called for by the influential, powerful Shia cleric Muqtada Sadr, who uh, can really, um, uh, he can get his uh, supporters out en masse in the streets. So we'll have to wait and see. We're starting to see right now images coming out of Baghdad with uh, dozens of protesters very close to the Swedish embassy. Uh, we'll have to wait and see how that goes. But the expectation is it's going to be uh, a, um, a large demonstration in Baghdad and elsewhere in Iraq as well. Okay. Uh, Jamana, thank you. Straight ahead. China's challenge. New numbers show a continued manufacturing malaise in the world's second largest economy. We'll discuss the outlook for new Chinese stimulus just ahead. And uh, fleeing before the 4th, US travellers heading to the airport before the Independence Day holiday. Can airlines cope after a week of crippling disruptions? That's just ahead. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff, and some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. 
Welcome back to First Move. New data released today shows the Chinese economy losing fresh momentum as its post-lockdown growth spurt fades further. Uh, the numbers will surely intensify calls for Chinese officials to do more to stimulate the world's second largest economy. Anna Corrin has that story. More bad news for China's economy with the release of economic data today from the manufacturing and services sector, which still indicates the economy is soft and struggling to rebound post-COVID. Manufacturing activity contracted for a third straight month, while services sector activity recorded its weakest reading since China abandoned its harsh zero-COVID measures at the end of last year. It comes following the government's announcement this week that economic growth for the world's second largest economy was projected to reach a modest annual target of around 5%. Addressing the World Economic Forum Summit in Tianjin earlier this week, Premier Li Qiang talked up China's growth, saying the second quarter of this year will be higher than the first, but not everyone is convinced. A long list of major banks and credit rating agencies have cut forecasts for China's economic growth this year, including S&P Global, Goldman Sachs, UBS and JP Morgan, among others. The property sector remains a drag on the economy as developers struggle to complete pre-sold projects. The local government debt burden is also coming into focus. Industrial output and retail sales remain sluggish, while youth unemployment is at a record 20.8 percent, causing a huge problem in China. Many young people anxious about China's economic uncertainty are flooding Buddhist and Taoist temples to pray for divine intervention in securing jobs. It's feared youth unemployment could further rise as a record 11.5 million college students graduate this summer. Well, CNN spoke with one earlier. Let's take a listen. I feel this year it's particularly hard to find a job. I've applied for so many jobs, but it was very difficult. Many small businesses and restaurants near my place have gone out of business. For those people of lower income level in society, for those whose lives are not very easy, it's been quite cruel. Analysts believe the government will be forced to stimulate the economy. Premier Lee addressed the matter yesterday during a cabinet meeting, saying the government plans to take measures to promote household consumption. He reportedly said taking targeted measures to boost household consumption is conducive to driving growth in consumer spending and economic recovery. The government will be under a lot of pressure to reverse this slump. Anna Corrin, CNN, Hong Kong. For a close look at China's economic challenges, I'm joined by Shezad Kazi, the managing director of the China Beige Book, a company that provides China research to investors. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, is there one thing you're particularly concerned about when you're looking at China's economy? When you look at the economy as a whole, Max, it's a mixed picture. Um, I think a lot of the worries around consumption slowdown are misplaced. Um, you know, concerns about manufacturing just going off the rails. Um, is also not fully accurate. But the one place where there absolutely should be concern is the property market, where you have housing sales slowing, you have home builders complaining about starts going down, investment going down. um, And it's pretty clear that China's property market recovery uh, is on shaky grounds and is probably going to remain that way in the coming months and years. Um, They've been missing expectations, haven't they? So for people like you, it's very difficult to you know, come up with the analysis on the exactly what's going to happen if they're missing expectations. And that's what creates the negativity. 
That's exactly right. Now, the problem here is that in the beginning of the year, a lot of the analysts uh, out of major Wall Street banks had published um, you know, expectations and projections of how rapidly China would uh, come back and how big the recovery would be, which were incredibly bullish. And quite frankly, they were completely disconnected from reality. And the problem is that even though the economy is continuing to recover, because the pace of the recovery is not anywhere near the unrealistic expectations of Wall Street analysts, the sentiment has turned incredibly negative. There was never going to be a big bang a monstrous recovery in 2023. It was always going to be slow um, and, and somewhat mediocre. And that's exactly what you're getting. It's tempting for the government, presumably, to borrow to fill this gap, but that wouldn't be healthy for the long term. Absolutely not. Again, I think, you know, a lot of expectations. So we've gone from expecting a consumer driven recovery in China to now markets hoping for a stimulus powered one. Uh, but the fact is that the days of big bang stimulus at uh, the post-GFC world, it's over. Uh, the party is no longer interested in that kind of growth. It's no longer interested in consistently leveraging up. If anything, the attention is on deleveraging. Any stimulus you get out of China this year will be targeted, will be very narrow. And I think investors need to readjust their expectations uh, for, for that type of stimulus, not the old bazooka that they're used to. Are you encouraging clients to focus on output, for example, or the sales volume? Because when you look at those specifics, which we often associate with successful economies, they're pretty good, aren't they? Yeah, we look, we're telling our clients to stay you know, constructive on a lot of the consumer names and, and, and the consumer sectors. On the manufacturing side, I think headwinds are building up. Uh, you know, and I think that needs to be acknowledged that the second half of the year actually is where we might see real problems on the factory side. That said, if you think about commodities, if you think about property, there is a lot of, there's an absolute slowdown, as I mentioned, um, and the commodities picture is nowhere near as bright as it was promised to be earlier that year. We've been urging caution this whole time. Okay. Shazai Kazi, Managing Director of the China Beige Book. Thank you very much indeed for joining me today. Uh, coming up after the break, we return to France, where the soul searching is underway, following yet another night of anti-police violence. When we come back, what needs to be done to address public anger? That's next. Hi. Welcome back to First Move. You're looking at live pictures uh, of Manhattan from our ceiling cameras. There in New York, another, um, this is actually the, uh, the bell, obviously closing. Another hazy day, though, in the Big, Big Apple more widely is the smoke from out-of-control Canadian wildfires continuing to impact a good portion of the United States. More than 100 million people in the U.S. are under air quality alerts as we approach next week's July 4th holiday. Canada cancelling its Canada Day fireworks display in Montreal tomorrow, too, as the smoke emergency continues to impact that city. Really murky out there. Nothing um, hazy about early action on Wall Street, though. Uh, the major averages all solidly higher as traders receive encouraging new inflation data. All this as investors begin closing the books on the second quarter and begin gearing up for the second half of the trading year. Tech investors eyeing what could be an historic day for Apple. The company beginning the session with a market cap of more than three trillion dollars. The Apple bulls hoping the company can close above that major milestone for the first time ever today. Apple is the first company ever to hit the three trillion dollar milestone. Uh, let's get back to our top story now, though.
Violence and unrest continue to grip France. Nearly 900 people were detained on the third night of protests over the fatal shooting of a teenager by police. Targets for the rioters ranged from bus stations to police stations. Uh, town halls, schools and Olympic game facilities were also burned. There was looting too. This Nike store was left in ruins. President Emmanuel Macron is in Paris calling for calm. The United Nations is urging the country to address what it calls deep issues of racism in the police force. And a short while ago, it was announced that social media platforms are being asked to remove sensitive content relating to the riots. Bruno Perro is a professor of French studies at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He joins me now from Paris. Thank you so much. Uh, for joining us. Do you think Macron is doing anything to really alleviate any of the concerns that are genuinely held by many of these protesters? Well, right now, uh, Emmanuel Macron just announced uh, additional resources uh, to deal with riots. Um, That is to say, more police deployed. He also called on parents to be responsible and social networks to collaborate. But these are very short-term responses. What is at stake is indeed deep racism in the police, its law enforcement in general, and these measures have yet to be announced. Uh, It's the case especially with the law from 2017, uh, initiated and voted by the socialist government, that actually lists circumstances that allow for the use of weapon uh, by the police forces uh, when facing a refusal to comply. And in a way, this uh, law, by listing those circumstances, has um, somehow acknowledged the possibility of using weapons. And um, since uh, 2017, the cases of uh, of death um, uh, after a traffic stop has uh, increased direly uh, uh, in France. So there is a need to address those issues, to transform the law, to change as well the way the police is controlled. Uh, right now, the institution in charge of controlling police forces is mostly composed of police officers. Um, France needs to go further and have an institution made of citizens, human rights organizations, and also representatives of groups uh, which face police brutality. Uh, Democracy is not just about the majority rule, it's also about learning from minority experience, and France has not reached this level of deep democracy. What about this weekend? I mean, there's going to be a huge amount of tension in the city ahead of this. And the idea that Macron's response is to send tens of thousands more police is actually quite provocative, considering the fact that they're protesting against the police and the way the police handle situations like this. Yes, absolutely. Um, Especially uh, in a context where there is... um, very strong urban segregation. You would be surprised how quiet uh, the center of Paris is right now, as if nothing had happened. It shows that not only there is this strong divide in France, but also that what is going on, it's an underprivileged population uh, protesting, but also destroying the very few resources that they have available, aka schools, bus stops, and so on and so forth. And since these groups 
um, uh, protest uh, in a quite spontaneous way. It's very difficult to predict uh, when the riots will end and when an, another form of conversation uh, will start. It, it reminds me of what famous French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu said many years ago uh, after other uh, urban riots. He said, you know, it's not so much about burning cars or not burning cars. It's about uh, having a, a purpose uh, and, 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 and trying to serve that purpose when protesting. Um, just give us a sense about the culture in France, though, because there'll be a lot of people looking at this in France, absolutely horrified at the damage to buildings and the disruption it's causing. You know, British tourists are being advised, given, being given travel alerts about travelling to France. It's very damaging to the country as well. So how many, you know, what proportion of people are for and against these types of protests, do you think? Well, I think there is, and it's probably a, a new phenomenon, more and more understanding of uh, abuses by police forces uh, in France and brutality. And this has to do with other social movements as well. Uh, obviously, let me take a very concrete example. Uh, I'm a professor at MIT, I'm a gay man, I work on LGBT uh, um, studies. The type of violence that I experience, the, the type of insult that I've faced in my life, is not equivalent to what racialized people in France face, obviously. I wouldn't have been arrested even if I had refused to comply the way uh, Nael was a, a few days ago. However, there is a resonance in terms of experiences of violence between different groups, and there's a greater sense of understanding of uh, these different experiences and the need to build a form of new kind of coalition. So th th there is a great understanding for this outcry, I would say, right now uh, among the younger generation of the French population, even if indeed at the media level and in the political arena, there are still discourses which are only trying to undermine uh, violence that initiated uh, the riots. Okay, uh, Bruno Perrault, Professor of French Studies at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Uh, to having. Ukraine now, where a Ukrainian military intelligence chief is claiming Yevgeny Pogozin is the target of a hit job planned from inside the Kremlin. The official says the Russian Federal Security Service has been charged with the task to assassinate Wagner boss, the Wagner boss, after the brief armed military insurrection over the weekend. Nick Payton Walsh joins me now. I mean, for many people, this won't be surprising, but, um, you know, where does this detail come from? Yeah, obviously we don't know the source of this information. Ukraine has had quite good intelligence about Russian moves in the past, but at the same time, too, Kirill Bogdanov, the head of uh, Ukraine's defence intelligence, his job is also to spread information that would be damaging to Russian unity and performance on the battlefield. This precisely that kind of thing. But it does feed into a broader question as to the whereabouts of Yevgeny Prigozhin. The deal that uh, essentially stopped the armed rebellion last weekend involved him going to Belarus. And while the president of Belarus, who brokered that deal, Alexander Lukashenko, has said that he in fact arrived in Belarus, we've seen uh, tracking data of planes affiliated uh, with Prigozhin going to St. Petersburg, Moscow, Minsk, unconfirmed pictures of someone who looks a bit like Yevgeny Prigozhin getting out of a helicopter uh, in St. Petersburg. All of this suggesting perhaps 
that we don't exactly know where Prigozhin is, but most importantly that Prigozhin has yet to step forward and publicly confirm that he's made that move essentially to exile that was part of the deal. Now, this also comes too in a climate, of course, of recrimination, of uh, possibly a cleaning house amongst the Russian military, the Russian security services, the Kremlin elite. They've never faced a challenge to Putin's hold on power like we saw at the weekend. And, you know, European intelligence official I spoke to pointed at hints of prior knowledge of the armed rebellion amongst possibly the Russian security or military elite. There have been reports suggesting the key general, uh, Sergei Sorovikin, who for a brief time ran the war in Ukraine, uh, may even have been detained. True or not, this division, this extraordinary climate of fear and suspicion is clearly running uh, wild across the Moscow elite at the moment. And the fate of someone like Yevgeny Prigozhin, the mere fact that we don't know that he's gone along with this deal and moved to Belarus, that simply enhances the currency he has amongst the Russian elite at the moment. We don't know the whereabouts of his fighters. Are they all really going along with the deal and moving to Belarus? President Zelensky here in Ukraine said some were still fighting in occupied areas in Luhansk. So a lot of questions and the continuing echo of this doubt and questioning essentially means that Putin has not put an end to this threat and it remains very live and, of course, very perilous for Russia's conduct with this already catastrophic, unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. Max? Okay. And Nick, thank you. A jury in Florida has found former Parkland uh, resource officer Scott Peterson not guilty on all charges. Peterson broke down in tears as the sentence was read on Thursday. Uh, prosecutors accused him of ignoring his training and waiting outside the high school as a gunman inside killed 17 people, including 14 students back in 2018. Sinez Carlos Suarez reports. The defendant is not guilty. An emotional Scott Peterson breaking down in a Florida courtroom after a jury finds the former school resource officer not guilty on 11 charges ranging from felony child neglect to perjury. Peterson was the first law enforcement officer on the scene the day 17 people, including 14 students, were gunned down at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in what remains the deadliest U.S. high school shooting ever. We've got our life back after four and a half years. It's been an emotional roller coaster for so long. State prosecutors accused Peterson of ignoring his training and doing nothing, failing to confront the gunman to save lives. What was expected was for Scott Peterson to value the lives of those children as much as he clearly valued his own. Prosecutor Kristen Gomes pointed out Peterson stayed in a protected position for more than 45 minutes while the shooter was free to move and continue his rampage. The defense argued gunfire echoed off buildings and Peterson couldn't tell where the gunshots were coming from. This is not just a victory for Scott. It's a victory for every law enforcement officer in this country who does the best they can every single day. For some of the victims' families, they don't see this as a victory. I feel that my faith in the U.S. justice system is shaken. Tony Montalto's daughter, Gina, was killed that day. We don't understand how this jury looked at the evidence that was presented and found him not guilty. Manuel Oliver, whose son Joaquin was killed in the mass shooting, says this was not a day to celebrate. Joaquin cannot say today, oh, I'm going back to my life. He will never say that. You guys signed for that job. 
And Fred Guttenberg, the father of victim Jamie, took his frustration of the verdict to Twitter. Quote, while Peterson and his attorney, Mark Eiglarsh, celebrate him getting his life back, they must always remember that my daughter was murdered. Now, after the break, sea creatures along the coast of California suffering from a deadly algae outbreak. We'll have a look at the rescue efforts after the break. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome back. An unsettling scene on the beaches of Southern California. Officials have been flooded with calls from people reporting sick, dying and dead sea lions and dolphins that have washed ashore. The reason? An outbreak of toxic algae in the waters off the coast. David Culver joined rescuers who said the algae bloom is unlike anything they've seen before. 8 a.m. and they're already playing catch-up. These marine wildlife rescuers inundated with calls for help. Two animals, one's sicker than the other one. One's way up the beach and there's one by the tide line. The beach itself over here has been narrowing, so it's a little dicey sometimes. We go along with wildlife rescuer Adam Fox. He's been saving sea lions for nearly 15 years. What he's seen on Southern California beaches since late May is unprecedented. Is there anyone there that potentially assist us? There's a lifeguard there. Okay, great. Thank you. As we get closer, we spot one of the sea lions. Looks like he's having a seizure right now. What we'll do is just be very gentle with her. Get those flipper pits in. And I'm going to flip her to you. Three, two, one. They obviously were able to rescue one, but you can see behind us another one it didn't survive. I mean, it's just heartbreaking seeing this. The cause sits just off the coast in the Pacific Ocean. Out here, scientists say a massive bloom of toxic algae is growing, stretching some 200 miles from Santa Barbara south to San Diego and forecasted to get worse. The ocean temperature is projected to be its warmest over the next five years. That's the recipe for these blooms to become more intense. Smaller sea creatures feed on the toxic algae, they, in turn, are eaten by larger mammals, like dolphins and sea lions. These algal blooms have happened before, but this year scientists warn that the concentration of toxins in this bloom, forecasted in red, is leading to potentially record deaths of marine life. Experts liken this to waves of a tsunami washing over local beaches with even more sea lions and dolphins showing symptoms. The dolphins, lifeless once they hit the shore, the sea lions, beached and suffering from seizures and paralysis. People who have called in because they've seen animals out on the beach, and they've described it as the ocean sort of coughing up death. I'm here to report a sea lion. Seems to be foaming at the mouth and looks like it's in some distress. This one's uh, really, really on his way out. His eyes are closed and it just shallow breathing. That's so sad. All of it weighs on rescuers like Adam. Sorry. <clears throat> I just know from working in the colonies how incredible the animals are. So, um, 
important. They deserve respect. Respect this team shows through care, unloading the seizing sea lion for Dr. Lauren Palmer to begin treatment. Dr. Palmer's not had a day off in months. Her desperate patients keeping her busy. Big breath. She seems a little bit more comfortable. There's no guaranteed cure. The meds and fluids can help flush the toxins out, but if the toxins take hold, the brain damage is irreversible, causing erratic and aggressive behavior, including towards people who get too close. Off to the side, we notice this pup fighting for survival, desperate for milk and nurturing that only his mother can provide. She's sedated as her body fights off the toxins. She might deliver a healthy life pup, but doesn't nurse, doesn't lactate, doesn't pay attention to it. The Marine Mammal Care Center had 40 sea lions this time last year. Today, they're caring for three times that number. We ordered fish uh, for the whole year based upon what we would normally see and have gone through the entire 150,000 pounds uh, this month. So overwhelming, they've had to accommodate overflow in the parking lot. And that's put strains on our personnel. Uh, We have one veterinarian. Is it only going to get worse? They used to call it an unusual mortality event. And unfortunately, they're frequent enough now that they no longer call them unusual because they're not. Relentless and expected to intensify. Possibly devastating generations of sea lions, like this pup, just seven days old. He may not make it. The hundreds of sea lions that are saved, unable to return home until the toxic algae clears. Get ready. Friday is set to be the busiest day to fly in the United States in what's expected to be a record-breaking holiday weekend. Nearly three million passengers are expected to fly today, according to the Transportation Security Administration, or TSA. That's nearly half a million more than this time last year. Pete Muntean is at the Ronald Reagan Washington National Airport. There are a few factors playing into this, aren't there, Pete? A lot of factors playing into this, Max. You know, things are a lot better today than they were earlier this week. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we saw really high cancellations across the United States, which was also trickling down into flights internationally. We heard from one passenger who had to rebook on a flight out of Newark trying to get to Portugal. She wasn't able to get a seat until Monday. Just check FlightAware. The cancellations here in the U.S., about 275 nationwide, 200 of them are from United Airlines. It's been really taking it on the chin leading up to this holiday week. In fact, 3,200 cancellations, more than any other airline in the United States, 7,200 flight delays, even in spite of all of those problems. The Transportation Security Administration says today will likely be the busiest day for air travel in the United States that we have seen since the start of the pandemic. The forecast, 2.8 Two million people passing through security checkpoints here and at airports across the country. When you consider the entire travel period through the July 4th holiday, July 5th, they say, if you add up every day, 17.7 million people in total. AAA takes it one step further. They say when you add in trains, when you add in people driving 50 miles or more, 50 million people will travel over the July 4th holiday. That is up compared to last year, up compared to 2019 before the pandemic. In fact, the highest number that AAA is forecasting since 2005 when they start putting, started putting out this forecast for the first time ever. So the big note here is one of caution, though, from AAA. And they say you really just have to prepare for cancellations and delays. That's the reality. Listen. 
What you need to remember when you're flying is to be prepared. Expect delays. Expect cancellations. Uh, get to the airport early. Have the app open on your phone so you're getting all those notifications from the airlines. Also, pay attention to the weather and pay and try and figure out where your plane's coming from because the weather may be great at your airport, but maybe the plane's flying in from another city and it could be delayed due to bad weather up there. United Airlines says it's on the road to recovery, trying to make things back to normal by July 4th. It says it is grateful in a new statement to all of its passengers who have had to go through so much over the last few days. The FAA, though, says there could be some problems later on in the day as thunderstorms start to build, especially in places like Atlanta, in Denver, some major hubs here in the United States that could have an impact on international flights. And the FAA is saying we could see ground stops, which could have a trickle-down of delays and cancellations, Max. Pete Montine is going to be busy. Thank you so much for joining us. That's it for the show. Um, have a good weekend, won't you? Connect the World with Becky is up next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.